He's going to drive along. There's a metro station which is on this side now. In front of us now, we have the uh, Twin Tower, and there's also Church Gates, not far from it. This is National Board of Statistics, and the one in front of it is the NMPC Towers. According to the estimates cited by the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, Nigeria lost $400 billion to corruption between 1960 and 1999. Some of that can be traced back to the rule of the dictator, General Sani Abacha. Nigeria is such a mixed uh, bag of the good, the bad, and the ugly. When I first heard about President Abacha dying, the, the general consensus is that he died in a Viagra-fueled orgy with three Indian prostitutes. Hold on a sec. Can you say that one more time? Some say he was killed by an apple laced with poison while in the company of sex workers. Lazarenko was my first kleptocracy case. It was very successful. I, I seized $258 million in the Lazarenko case. So then for a while, I was the go-to person. This is A Nation for Thieves. I'm Justin Shankaro, and alongside Deborah LaPravat, we're exploring the deep underworld of kleptocracy and how it affects our daily life. Deborah is an FBI veteran having spent 25 years chasing down bad guys across the world. She was top of her class at Quantico, the FBI training academy. I was down in Miami visiting one of my classmates from Quantico, and we all went out on a boat, and I looked around, and there were eight guns on the boat, because there were eight of us. And I just laugh. It's like, you take it for granted that, of course, they're all bringing their guns with them. We're out for the day. It's a different lifestyle. I was armed pretty much most of the time for 20 years. I always had a gun in my purse. I mean, I'd be at a wedding and I thought, ah, I'm in a church, I have a gun in my purse. But things happen anywhere. But if I knew I was going to a party, the weapon stays at home. So if you were going to a wedding or a church, you would have your gun with you? Yeah, because I didn't take it out. I mean, it, it wasn't like I'm packing for the wedding. I'm expecting trouble from the groom's side of the family. Um, <laughs> you know, just in case he chickens out. But I always had a gun with me because what you find out is you, you talk to other agents. There have been so many agents who had to intervene when they were at a McDonald's and something hit the fan. Male agent who was shopping with his family and somebody pulled a knife on the escalator at a mall and he shot them. If I were out with a guy, their instinct would be to protect me. My instinct would be grab their shoulder and say, get down. Proceed with my training. I have a weapon, I have training, I know how to confront. And so there is this push and pull when you're dating someone where of course they're the guy and they feel the need to protect their girlfriend and you going, well, well wait a second, I'm the cop, I know how to protect myself and I need to know that you're secure, so I need you to get down. And the same thing with your kid. I want to intervene if something bad is happening, but I, my job as a mother is to protect my child. So how do I get my child out of there and secure? So you also have to know when to be a witness and when to intervene. Debbie, when you said get down, I pretty much went underneath the table. <laughs> well, then we'd get along great. Justin, <laughs> yeah. Yes, you know. Deborah started making a name for herself as a lone ranger fighting corrupt kleptocrats anywhere they appeared. 
I think it was around 2006, I got a phone call from DOJ and they're like, Debbie, we're being asked to go after monies that were stolen out of Nigeria. We're gonna be working, uh, trying to recover assets stolen by uh, former president, Sonny Abacha. And I'm like, okay, well, how much money did he take? And they're like, about 5 billion. And I'm like, billion with a B, billion? <laughs> and they're like, yeah. I'm like, okay, wow. I'm in the wrong profession. Stealing public money seems to be the way to go. Only joking. Okay, now I'm like five billion. What I tell people now in, in retrospect is that it's so much easier to go after somebody who took five billion because if you take a hundred million, you can squander it, right? You have prostitutes, you have mistresses, you buy a villa, you buy an aircraft, you buy a boat. It's really hard to spend five billion dollars. Man, and I thought Lazarenko's 300 million was a lot. I could buy the White House 12 times over for that kind of money. Seems easier than running for president. Nigeria has a bad rap, but it was for a while really well-deserved. I think it was around like 1997, 98. Nigeria was considered the most corrupt country in the world. Today, that's South Sudan, but at the time it was Nigeria. And I don't think there's anybody who hasn't heard about like Nigerian email scams and other Nigerian fraud scams. So I remember when they used to do all the telemarketing, right? They would call all the time or they'd send an email. You know, they'd hook you because you have to send money to them. And then they'll return the money. They'll give you a bigger percentage. That was a huge thing for years. It is. And the number of people that fall for those scams. I mean, to this day, like people will call the FBI and say they were ripped off. And I'm like, if you didn't enter the Canadian lottery, why do you think you won the Canadian lottery? <laughs> right. And it's a Nigerian scam. They may say they're from Canada, but they're from Nigeria and they're trying to defraud you of money especially, uh, you know, somebody, the upfront money. You won a million dollars, but you have to send the taxes up front. Well, no, if, it, if you really won the money, they would have taken the taxes out of that and sent you the rest. And people get mad at us when we like take down a Ponzi scheme because they were getting paid. And I'm like, but you're being paid with the next victim's money. Your money was never invested. It was a Ponzi scheme or it was a, a, some other type of internet fraud. So Nigeria was just really known for corruption. Almost every minister of petroleum out of Nigeria has been investigated at some level for corruption within the Nigerian petroleum industry. I think it's estimated that Goodluck Jonathan, who was a president like a decade after President Abacha, took 10 to $20 billion out of the country. Wow, and, and you're saying Abacha took $5 billion. $5 billion. That's, yeah. I mean... How many rooms would it take to put that amount of money in? That's an insane amount of money. You know, people have actually calculated that, like how much money will fit in like a, a steamer trunk. And it's like, you, you can get a million dollars into a certain size suitcase, but $5 billion, I mean, that's gonna fill up like the whole floor of a hotel. Don't forget my job going after the money is, I have to trace it back to the scheme. So how did Abacha take $5 billion? Who is this guy? Who is? Sani Abacha, how did he get to this position of power where he could steal billions of dollars? He's a bad, bad man. He was a military commander, right? And he moved up within the military. So it was around 1993, he was headed like chief of staff of the army or head of the army. There was an election and they had like an interim unity government and he had a coup. He took over the government. Was he rich before this? 
No, he was not. His kids would come back and say, oh, well, you know, we had money. No, he has been in the military his whole life. Yeah, his son had some businesses, but I mean, nothing lucrative. Some of them went bust. So Abacha now takes over the government. And it's a forcible coup. Gets rid of the president. Does he kill him? Does he imprison him? What happens? No, he just removes him. He had him resign. You know, when you're the head of the military and you have the military force behind you, he had the interim president resign and he took over. So it was, it was considered a coup. Debbie told me later that Abacha originally lost the election, but he was so insecure about it, he hired a personal security force of 3,000 men who were all trained in North Korea to secure his presidency. I think I'm almost at that level of fame where I need a security team like that. They still call him General Abacha, not so much President Abacha, because he was a dictator. Once he got into office, he passed legislation where he and his office were above the law. There was nothing they could do that anybody could go after him for. So he just rewrites the laws? How is this feasible? You're the president of Nigeria. The military is working for you and the people beneath you will benefit from you. So yes, he passed like an executive type order. He made a proclamation that he and his office was above the law. So there's no separation of executive branch No. No, okay. Similar to democracies. Yeah, yeah, there aren't the checks and balances that we have here. (laughs) Clearly. It was very violent. He went after the opposition party. The person that would have run against him was arrested for treason, and he was jailed. The wife of the person who was jailed was actively trying to get her husband out of jail and was showing how this was a miscarriage of justice, and she was murdered, like, in the street. It's alleged that Mohammed Abacha, President Abacha's son, was involved in that homicide. You get the case. Step one, what is the first thing that you do? Well, the first thing I did is I reached out to uh, the FBI agents who were stationed in Nigeria. They're at the U.S. Embassy in Nigeria. Some are in Lagos, some are in the capital of Abuja. Sorry to interject, but why do we have FBI agents in different parts of the world? I thought they were only here in the U.S. We have FBI agents all over the world. And it's why is because they're, they're our liaison. They're called legates, legal attaches, and they are our liaison to law enforcement in that area. After 9-11, some of the 9-11 hijackers had passports from Saudi Arabia. Well, we have FBI agents on the ground in Riyadh who can immediately go over to the Ministry of Justice and meet with our foreign counterparts and get evidence. When there were the bombings in Kenya and Tanzania several years ago at the embassies there, again, we had FBI agents on the ground who were able to help process those crime scenes, recover like bits of the car bombs, and send them back to the FBI lab where they could be processed as evidence. The LEGAT program for the FBI places FBI agents all over the world. And when you're working these kind of cases or terrorism cases, you need to have relationships with your foreign counterparts. You contact your FBI counterparts that are in Nigeria, and what do they tell you about him in Nigeria at that time? I said, hey, you guys, I need an education. I need an education on uh, Sonny Abacho. What do you know about him? And of course, you know, he was a president. Uh, He was a dictator of that country for four or five years. There's a lot of material. 
I got the Abacha case maybe six years after he died, six or seven years after he died. So there had already been a great deal of information written about the guy who looted $5 billion out of Nigeria. So your counterparts, they give you an education 101. What are the kind of the highlights of it? You know, what you find out is that he was a dictator and he was a brutal dictator. He had death squads. Death squads? Death squads, people that would go after anyone in the opposition. The best way to secure your position in a power of monetary authority is one, you have control over the army. Two, you have control over your secret police and secret, like your security service people that are doing eavesdropping, people that are using covert measures to keep an eye on your opposition. You arrest your opposition for treason, ends up dying in jail. His wife is murdered by one of these death squads. It creates a situation where it's hard to go up against President Bacha if you see those who oppose him die. Remember that security force that I was thinking about hiring? Yeah. They became the death squads, not so much. How does he have them trained in North Korea? He didn't have uh, rules that would prohibit them in 1993. You know, that's when he got into office. He spoke to the president then of North Korea. You have to remember, there's always a tit for tat. Like, do they want oil? I mean, Nigeria is one of the richest oil countries in all of Africa. We'll provide 3,000 of your troops with military training. In exchange, we need access to oil and lucrative minerals. So you get the case in 2006. When's the first time you go to Nigeria? Within a year. It wasn't immediate because it had been six years since he had died or more. I knew where a lot of the money was. It was frozen. When Obasanjo got into office, he sent out a request to everybody. Which one was Obasanjo? Just- uh, he was like two, uh, a president and a half. Like they had an interim president and then President Obasanjo, who was, by the way, also arrested and put and tried with, for treason under Abacha. He got out and later became the president of Nigeria. He put an all out effort to like, let's go after globally Abacha's loot. I arrive and I will tell you, Nigeria is a beautiful country. Abuja is a very modern city. Is Abuja the capital? Yeah, it's the capital. I arrive in somebody from the, like the FBI agent who's assigned to the U.S. Embassy will meet me at the airport. And when you are flying for the FBI, are you carrying a gun? Do you have any security measures? What are you packing and what do you take with you? I have no authority to carry a weapon overseas. So when I fly in the United States as an FBI agent, I'm armed. How do you do that? Because I've never seen somebody standing in the security line taking out a gun. And you won't, yes. Okay. (laughs) Yes. Because that would scare me for sure. Yes. We prefer not to create an incident at the airport. There are LEO, law enforcement officer, entrances. I show them my badge, my creds. There's paperwork that I get. When I get to the plane, I introduce myself to the gate guard. They will usually allow me to board first so that I can introduce myself to the pilot. The pilot will know that I'm on board, that I'm armed. 
They'll let me know if there are other FBI agents, maybe from another division or a Secret Service agent or a DEA agent also. After 9-11, there were air marshals, and you don't know who they are. As somebody who flies, I have no idea if there's an FBI agent or air marshal on the plane. Exactly, but I do. I want to know if there was an incident on that aircraft. Three people who have guns, okay, there's me, there's another FBI agent, and there's a U.S. marshal on. You know, what are we going to do, and how are we going to coordinate, because we don't know each other. You want to know who else is armed on your aircraft. You don't know if it's one person on that aircraft or many. So you sit low and you observe first before you intervene, unless they're about to, like, kill the flight attendant, and then you intervene. If you shoot a gun on a plane, that's a bad thing. (laughs) You know, ping, 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 you don't know where it's going. You know, if it's going through the wall, the, the walls of aircraft are very thin. Or you don't hit the fuselage, you know. Luckily, the cockpits now are bulletproof. So you arrive in Nigeria. I remember, like, a lot of smoke. And I just don't know why, because it's a very modern city. Very busy. It is a bustling city. And so I pile into a black SUV, which is standard government issue, right? Wait a sec. They're not just only in the movies and TV. That's actually real? No, we actually buy black SUVs. (laughs) and uh, That's cool. There was a, a major crime problem. That's why I just couldn't, like, hop into a taxi. My first stop is the U.S. Embassy. You're driving into the city. There's skyscrapers and there's a Marriott. I stay at the Hilton. I'm with the FBI agent who's assigned there. And as we're getting ready to approach the Hilton Hotel, over to my right, there's this giant white mansion. I mean, you can Google it. It's known as a a corruption property. And it's funny because the windows are askew. There's four on the left and three on the right, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Of this mansion. They're not centered. It's huge. And it's the proceeds of corruption. And they're like, oh, that belongs to this guy. He's alleged to have embezzled all this money. So it's just so funny that here I am, I'm there to fight corruption and to work with my Nigerian counterparts on recovering uh, $5 billion that was stolen from the country. And yet I'm looking at a property that's known to belong to a corrupt official. The white mansion with the weird windows belongs to a Nigerian politician. He consulted with President Abacha and owned nine properties, a Bentley and a Range Rover. Seven of the properties that he purchased using Nigerian public money were in London. One, he paid 2.1 million pounds in cash. That was in 2001. In today's money, that's 3.7 million pounds or nearly 5 million US dollars. That same guy rose to political success after he left the UK, embarrassed when he was found stealing a credit card while working in a local hardware store in a working class suburb of London. He was so embarrassed that he got caught stealing a credit card that he fled the country. Next thing you know, he's some big shot corrupt official in Nigeria. Wonder whose credit card he used to buy that mansion. So my first thing is, I wanna know who are my counterparts? I don't know them, right? I, I haven't worked with my Nigerian officials. What you find out is there's the EFCC, Economic Financial Crimes and Corruption Unit, which is their anti-corruption commission. I met with them and I said, okay, I understand that 
Over 2.3 billion was stolen in this one scheme. It was called the security votes scheme. What happened? It's just ludicrous. A letter would be brought to the president by Mr. Guarzo, the head of his military. And that was like his right-hand guy? Yeah, it was his uh, military advisor. Okay. And it would say, Mr. President, I need $15 million to buy bulletproof vests for a, a security uh, division. President Abacha would sign it. That letter would be taken by Mr. Guarzo to the head of the central bank. The money would be provided in cash or sometimes cashier's checks to Mr. Guarzo, who would bring it back to the presidential mansion. Were there any bulletproof vests ever that were given to their security, their military, or was that all just nonsense? Not out of that money. Not out of that so, money. Yeah. So that money was just given straight to him. Yes. This was called the security votes scheme. I don't know why they called it that, but these letters were considered security votes. So they kept just saying, you know, we need to buy 12 tanks and we need this much money. And President Abacha would sign the letter. Mr. Gorzo would take it to the bank and he would come back sometimes with a truck load full of cash. That's unbelievable. And then people that are working at, at the president's mansion, I would suppose, they're seeing all of this and they're not saying anything? Not if you're in charge of a death squad and you ran the military and you won the country in a coup. Plus, if you're working at the presidential mansion, compared to the average Nigerian, you're probably being paid well. So you keep your mouth shut and you keep your job and your life. I have a copy of some of the so-called security letters right here from Abacha. June 2nd, 1994. In view of the ongoing negative campaign against this country, a small international operation has been mounted to cover it. Approve, as a matter of urgency, the sum of $5 million. November 30th, 1994. A million dollars are requested to combat an economy that was deflected and distorted through the black market. August 20th, 1994. In light of the current political situation in the country, Coupled with the increase in security operations, there is need for a lot of funds to handle the challenges outlined above, such that I require 300 million Naira, plus 30 million dollars and 15 million pounds. Consider desperate need and approve. Does anyone have the mailing address for the Fed? So you briefed by the FBI, the DOJ, my next step would be to meet with the Nigerian investigators and the prosecutors out of Nigeria. Who have you already talked to? What has been frozen? Because you're the point of origin of the crime. I need to know how it left. As part of her investigation, Deborah spoke with Lanre Siraju, who is the chairman of anti-corruption group Human and Environmental Development Agenda. He was recently named one of the 100 most influential civil society leaders in Nigeria and is known as one of the country's most prominent anti-corruption activists. It is the country where you have enormous resources in terms of both natural and human resources, but then you don't have any tangibles to show for these resources. We were able to get on a call with Lon Ray using the equipment he could cobble together from his secure location in Nigeria. He had just left court after an intense day under scrutiny for what we understand are fabricated charges. I wanted to talk Abacha. He's someone who keeps coming up. Abacha actually ended up being almost like a deposit bank, a secret deposit bank for Nigeria's funds and resources. 
Abacha actually hid the loot in different countries, including African countries. So including buying and building refineries and also giving quite a number of aids to some of the African countries in the bids to buy some measure of legitimacy. Lonray had been falsely accused of forging evidence that exposes the corruption of oil multinationals. The evidence has been verified as genuine, but he still faces persecution in Nigeria for daring to hold the powerful to account. There's a list of physical threats. People do so many heinous things and also undertake some very nefarious activities. And that really is one of the challenging situations. Standing up to these characters would mean that you would have to be extremely careful in terms of your normal daily routine because they're capable of doing anything. And when I say anything, I mean anything. Both legal and illegal, official and unofficial. It could be really tough having to manage uh, the family and also reassure them and also continuing doing the work. We have little understanding that it is part of the normal everyday life and also hazard of the work that we do. And we also take some precautionary security measures, both at the office and at home. When I go to Abuja for the trial, we can afford to repeat in the same hotel. So we have to be moving from different hotels each time we, we go for the trial. The security consciousness has also increased tremendously. I don't know that people can really internalize what he is going through. You do fear for yourself, but more so for your family. The government controls the media. These stories get out uh, that you've uh, submitted a forgery or you've done this or that. The work that someone like Lamre has to do to counter that is enormous. I hope and pray that the judge in Nigeria isn't being bought off. I have testified before judges before that were bought off. The global anti-corruption community wants to know how we can help Lanre. There's a lot we want to do and a lot we can't do. We will keep supporting him in his fight for justice for himself and his family as he continues to fight corruption in his country. Deborah has spent her entire career working on the Abacha case. Even though she retired from her role at the FBI in 2015, she continues to work on international kleptocracy cases, including the Abacha case. The bulk of money wasn't returned until 2020, 14 years after Debbie first took the case on. $150 million is still unaccounted for. One day I would receive 57 boxes full of financial documents. Justin and I had a very good conversation once. The TV show 24, huge fan, love Jack Bauer. But I would laugh and say, if somebody followed Debbie Laprovat for 24 hours and made it into a TV show, 
The first hour and a half would be Debbie sitting in traffic getting to the Washington field office. <laughs> That's almost two episodes of television. I know. And me listening to books on CD or trying to learn Spanish in my car. Then I get to DC and I grab a Diet Coke, sit down in my office and check emails from all around the world, right? Because they're coming in all night from different areas where I'm currently investigating. And then I'm like, okay, today is dedicated to a bacha. I have 57 boxes of bank records that came from Switzerland. Do you go through them? Do you have a team? What is that process like? I used to laugh. Somebody go, well, Debbie, could you have somebody? And I'd look around behind me going, do you see anybody? <laughs> you, know, you have people. I don't have people. I got me. <laughs> Diet Coke is my caffeine, but I do comically say that, yes, I probably drink my weight in Diet Coke. It is the breakfast of champions and the uh, nectar of the gods. I hope Coke is going to be sponsoring this podcast. <laughs> I definitely should hold stock. I'm hoping that one of my accountants has a portfolio that contains Diet Coke in it somewhere. <laughs> you know what, though? When I travel around the world, there's two things I can count on. Pringles potato chips, because they're all over Africa, right? I can go in any store and I can find Pringles. And I can find Diet Coke. I may be buying that Diet Coke for $4 a can. Why is it $4 a can? I was in Nigeria, and I, I, I needed to get my Diet Coke fix. And I went over to the, the bar in the hotel, and I said, can I buy a, a can of Coke? And he goes, oh, it's $4. And I said, give me $20 worth. I'm going to be gone all day. <laughs> you know? So I left with my five cans. But there's a lot of places I go in the world where you can't drink the water. You need a water filtration system. You've got to buy bottled water. So I can count on getting a Diet Coke. Abacha's embezzled money was difficult to track down, in part because of how he spent it and who he gave it to. There's a lot of speculation on exactly how he died, but the general consensus is that he died of a Viagra-fueled heart attack with three Indian prostitutes. What so, a way to go out. There's also several allegations that those prostitutes were paid to introduce poison to him. There were a lot of people that were disgruntled with the level of corruption in the country and the way the military was being used. Under Muslim tradition, he was buried that day. There was no autopsy, so there's not going to be a toxicology report to see if it was the Viagra or some other poisonous substance that killed Abacha. But he died, I think, July of 1998. His wife, Miriam, thought it best to get out of town. So she was going to head to Saudi Arabia, and she was stopped at the airport with 38 suitcases stuffed with cash. Unbelievable. It was over $5 million and different currencies, like stuffed into all these 38 suitcases. Abacha's money hit U.S. banks. The money is buying property in other countries. So if you're in uh, Palm Island, if you're in Dubai and you go to buy a condo and somebody steps in with cash from Nigeria, you don't get the condo, they do. You're talking 800 condos or properties in uh, the UAE. His son, Mohammed Abacha, was once handed a box of $700 million. How are you handed a box of $700 million? Well, a truck pulls up with boxes of money and they were giving them to Muhammad to move out of the area so that it could be laundered outside of Nigeria. Investigators in Nigeria later, you know, after President Abacha died, were interviewing Muhammad and they said, well, when your father handed you $700 million, did you like say, dad, what is this from? He goes, it never crossed my mind. 
This is $700 million. Do you know how many people could have eaten? Do you know how much medicines could have been bought? Do you know how much education could have happened? There's no other link in their minds between the greater good that could be done with this money and somehow the entitlement of, I'm do it. There's no empathy or anything for the people. It's just, this is what I'm, I deserve to get this money. The same investigators, when they were talking to Muhammad about all this money, they're like, well, t tell us, what did you think? Like, how did you get all this money? And he said, I got it the old fashioned Nigerian way. More than 50 million Nigerians scrape by on less than one US dollar per day. Deborah and Lonray are doing all they can to put an end to this corruption in Nigeria. One of the cases they're working on is currently investigating former Attorney General Mohamed Adoke in a $1.3 billion fraud scheme involving oil. Adoke has applied for a visa to come to the US for medical treatment. Doesn't he know how much healthcare costs here? 1.3 billion won't get him very far. A couple nights at Cedar Sinai and some jello, it'll all be gone. Why is the State Department letting this very corrupt man come seek medical attention in the United States? But they are. If the United States isn't supposed to be a safe place for kleptocrats or their money, why do we let them come here for medical treatment? How does the U.S. give the money back to Nigeria? How did you give the money back to Nigeria? Because as you said, you could just give it back and the money could go to a corrupt official and it's gone again. And you spent years trying to track it down. Yes, President Buhari and his administration sits down with our U.S. State Department, the Department of Justice, because that's who forfeited the funds, the FBI and uh, the Isle of Jersey, their Ministry of Justice. We say, look, the United States, Jersey, other countries, we cannot continue to help countries recover money if there isn't full transparency as to the disbursement of the money and that we can't guarantee that the money will not be stolen again. President Buhari uh, sat down and said, look, I want these major infrastructure projects to be accomplished in my country. There was a, a full set of agreements between these three countries that said the money will go back to these three projects, that there will be full disclosure on the money, that civil society and investigative journalists will be able to monitor the success. Say it's a road construction contract, that three of the uh, companies that are subcontracted aren't owned by the family members of elites. We just tried to guarantee that there would be full transparency, and that's how the first 311 million was returned in 2020. President Buhari, who won election based off of an anti-corruption campaign, he came out and said, President Abacha did not steal any money from Nigeria. He was saving it for a rainy day. That's insane. It is insane. That's and there's crazy. nobody who buys that story. But why and would he say that? I thought he was anti-corruption. He is anti-corruption. You know what? There's always going to be things going on back channels that I'm unaware of, and especially when I'm in DC and they're in Abuja. Who knows? You know, maybe they need something from people that were supporters of Abacha. It was known as Abacha's loot. We returned $311 million. Ultimately, I see $630 million of Abacha's money. We returned 311 million of that in 2020. They stopped saying Abacha's loot and they now refer to it as the U.S. helped Nigeria recover Abacha's assets. You're kidding. No, I'm not kidding. Bahari was one of Abacha's minions and has publicly supported him on many occasions.
My hope for the future of Nigeria is for the country to take its rightful position in the Committee of Nations. It should not just be called the most populous black country for just the population, but where we are also able to support other countries that are in need of either aids or you know, human support uh, or professional support and not being a dependent country that would uh, be looking forward to aid from other developed countries. I mean, this is because we have the abundance, natural and human resources for this to really happen. And do you think things will change in Nigeria? Yeah, I hope things will change. I'm looking forward to uh, other patriotic and also genuinely committed Nigerians to be part of that process well. Also looking forward to uh, Nigerians in diaspora, you know, also getting involved back at home to see things change, you know, uh, for the better. I uh, hope things will change in my lifetime. How do you continue to do it? I mean, clearly this is tremendously traumatic and a huge financial burden. Do you ever feel just like walking away from it? Not at all. It's part of the design of my traducers. They assumed that I would just walk away or I would just, you know, run away with the threat of um, what has been happening. But that is actually not my style. That That is actually not my intention. I would rather not want to put the family, the innocent family in the arms way possibly get them out of the reach of uh, these characters. But as for myself, I'm really willing to stand up to their efforts at shrinking the civic space. Quite a number of people that are also looking up to me, you know, in what we do. Quite a number of people can see the kind of, you know, strength and the boldness that we've brought to uh, our activities. For any reason, uh, we get to abandon that, then you can be sure that quite a lot of people would also run away from engaging in this advocacy. It's just a natural response. I, I think it is just part of my understanding of the purpose of my existence. I think there's just something to always live for. Mandela said, if you don't have what you want to die for, then there's really nothing really to what living for. I think we need to live for the country. We need to bring the bad guys to book. And we also need to look at the future of our coming generations. Two weeks after we spoke with Lonray, he was brutally attacked. Armed men burst into his house with guns and knives and even a machete and threatened to kill him and his family. I was fast asleep with my wife in my room. My kids and my sister-in-law were in their rooms. I just got the, the tap on the bed saying, Mr. Man, get up. The guy with the shotgun just put it to my head and said, just stay where you are. That's coming up on A Nation for Thieves. A Nation for Thieves is narrated by myself, Justin Shankaro, with Deborah LaPravat. 
produced by Charlie Webster and Jackson McLennan. Edited by Nicholas Palella. Music by Sean Henninger. Executive producers, Charlie Webster, Justin Shankaro, Stephen Neely, and Deborah LaPravat. Audio provided by Big Wills. Lionsgate Sound, engineered by Pilgrim Media Group.